All right, welcome to the Dirty Shirt. We have a special edition today. Bill and I are live at the Pentagon with our good friend, Vice Admiral Mike Shoemaker, who's the air boss. And I will also add that he's an academy classmate of mine, and we actually knew each other at school. You know, a lot of times people celebrate being classmates and they didn't really know each other, but, uh, but we do know each other. Um, I also saw your brother on the golf course a few months ago. All right. Yeah, he was playing in front of me. Um, so, Admiral, it's great to have you here on the East Coast. I know you're just making a, a brief stay here in, at the Pentagon. Uh, headed to Norfolk tomorrow, is that right? In we are. Oceana. Um, so let's start by talking about OBOGS. Um, and if you would, take us back to where this first came to the public's attention, which is the flight instructors sort of, I mean, how would you put it, mutinied or just said, we're not going to fly because the airplane isn't safe. Yeah, so um, the way I characterized it, Ward, was as an ORM pause, and that's the, the process, our operational risk man management process that you and I are very familiar with is what they used on the end of March. It was kind of a culmination of some things, some things they were watching in terms of trends and a change in the severity of, of um, um, things happening in the cockpit. There were a couple of key events, you know, three or four, where um, as we – so in terms of the OBOGs and the T-45s, um, the emergency procedure when you had something happen with those, a light of some kind or a, a, a things not quite right in the cockpit, and we do a lot of training, as you're well aware, in terms of um, in our simulators, practice with reduced oxygen breathing devices. So when things aren't quite right, they'd use emergency oxygen, 100% oxygen. And that was alleviating symptoms up until a couple of key events we saw in March. So what, what were the symptoms? I mean, were they nauseous or getting hypoxic? So it, or it was like hypoxia-like, okay. um, you know, tingling, um, the, you know, lightheadedness, same, similar, similar, similar um, symptoms to hypoxia. But again, when they would execute the emergency procedures and um, go to 100% oxygen, those symptoms were not being relieved. And so there were a few landings where instructor pilots were impaired as they came back to land. Um, that information was being shared through the Sinatra chain up to Nav Air, um, and they were working it. They were, we were trying to keep all those instructors informed of what we were doing, but I think in terms of the, and the way Vice Chief characterizes as he looked at the review, 30-day review that Pac Fleet just finished up, um, there was some information working in the IP social network when these things were happening, I mean, emails going out when they land, and kind of ahead of our ability to keep up with that from an OODA loop perspective um, in terms of safety center reporting, reporting for PEs and things like that. So we, um, I think it all kind of came to a head with, a, with, not a, with not being fully informed on all the things we were doing, but wondering why we hadn't taken action, more definitive action, uh, based on those couple of three events. Um, and then th that led to the ORM pause at the end of March. And then followed that with a visit by the, the NAVAIR team in early April. I went around right after that team, visited each one of the sites, really just to s listen to their concerns, share with them the things we were doing, that this had my, obviously, my full attention as our number one safety priority inside Naval Aviation, but moving forward with a sense of urgency. And given what we had found, though, um, and the c some kind of a contaminant, we, we ended up grounding the airplanes um, for a while to do some things uh, to work through the T-45, the kind of a root cause process. And I'll, I'll be honest, we don't, we don't have a root cause. We've done some things to the airplane. I think that as I made some recent rounds last week with the Sinatra teams in primarily in uh, Kingsville, Meridian, Pensacola, but to let them know what we've done to modify the airplane, 
um, some things we've done to the system from a hygiene perspective and, and then kind of my intent to move forward. Uh, cautiously reminding them that we had not found a root cause here moving forward, so we may, may have another physiological episode. But I think with the, um, the things we put in place, and I can talk in more detail about that, but we've got the ability now with things we have on air crew, um, ability to collect on a contaminant um, and find out both what it is and when it happened and with what level of um, sort of, uh, you know, concentration, if you will, and it time stamps it. So it's good. So we won't miss an opportunity to collect if something happens like that again. We weren't flying with these, they're called sorbent tubes and hydrocarbon detectors. We were not flying with those in big numbers before. That was, um, so so we had a ba an opportunity to baseline the level of stuff we were seeing across T45s, nothing out of the ordinary, but we missed an opportunity in the past to collect on, a, on an event. So are, are they flying with O2 now? Because uh, my last understanding was they were below 10K and less than 2Gs kind of stuff. I mean, are they actually full up rounds again? So not quite. We just finished the testing. Uh, so one of the key things we put in the airplane was a water separator. As we looked back through working with Boeing and um, some of our other international partners who have been flying T-45s, um, and NASA, some of the review of the NASA F-22, or uh, excuse me, the F-22 work the Air Force did. Um, as we looked at the kind of the OBOGS community, um, every airplane in the fleet that flies that has something that takes moisture out of the system, except the T-45. And so that was a key thing in the, in the way the OBOGS concentrator, what turns the just normal bleed air into concentrated oxygen, pulling nitrogen out. Um, there's filters in there that remove that um, nitrogen. And they're very, they don't like water. They don't like moisture in the system. And so one of the theories, hypothesis, was that there was some of this moisture getting in there. They were maybe off-gassing some kind of a contaminant. Um, we did a lot of testing with Cobham, who is the, who builds the, makes the SID beds, builds the concentrators actually for us. Some significant testing in the, in the aftermath of the end of March events, actually for the last couple of months. Could not replicate anything like that, but we still knew that we need, we need to do, do a, and we understand in general the fleet, those fleet airplanes, any airplane in general works better with cooler, drier air going into the OBOGS concentrator. So Boeing has built, um, has installed a water separator. Um, we've got probably 40 of those installed right now across the, uh, across the uh, T-45 fleet. Pax River's been flying with them for the last couple of weeks to understand, um, you know, the envelope and any restrictions we might have by putting that in the system. One thing we learned was that the T-45, just the, you know, the power of the engine, it doesn't put out, I mean, it's not like a, you know, a Tomcat or an F-18, which puts out in the bleed air system that does all the conditioning of the cockpit air and, and pressurization. It's, um, it's not as powerful from the, the smaller engine in there. So we've got to be careful as we pull that air off the engine that we don't, you know, reduce the, the pressure going through so there's, a, you know, a, a reduced pressure to the, to the pilots from the breathing air. So that was most of the testing, and we found there was a, just a very little drop in pressure across that water separator, but, but it was removing moisture, which was a good thing. Um, we installed a new monitor there. Uh, it's a, an oxygen monitor that allows us to, uh, to, to um, track both pressure and concentration and the temperature of the air coming into the concentrator. It gives a better alert, alerting um, indication to the air crew in the cockpit. Um, we're going to, as I mentioned, we'll fly with sorbent tubes and hydrocarbon detectors on every air crew that's, that will, as we jump back in the airplanes. And then we've done some hygiene, cleaning of the system, and then a, an ability to monitor sort of from a flight line health monitor perspective, both before and after the concentrator. Every airplane will run up and test to make sure we're not seeing any kind of weird, uh, the term is volatile organic compounds, anything that is not, we would not expect to see in the, in the system. 
so that's a, a bit of a description on what we've done to the T-45s. Right now, the, the airplanes are modded. The instructors, once we finish up with the nav air flying and have the full interim flight clearances that will go and drive our NATOPS um, um, discussions and corrections or inter interim changes to the NATOPS, which I expect to have complete by this week, so we'll start flying instructors on the full up OBOGs, new OBOGs with all the modifications, the, sort of the package. Um, early next week, and I would say in a couple of weeks as they get current and have been through the syllabus again, we'll jump in with students. So what, what has the impact been to student throughput? Because, you know, we just graduated a bunch of uh, mids, yeah. and they were all talking about being in pools and whatnot and how much fun that was going to be. And, and then it, it starts to be a concern, obviously, yeah. when it starts being four, six months beyond what right. you thought your start date was going to be. So right now, um, what we, I mean, our last fly was really the end of March. We've been doing some just IP uh, currency proficiency flying. You talked about it staying below 10,000 feet and with a modified mask. And it's just a, an oxygen mask with a little flip cap that allows you to breathe ambient air directly from that. Um, that was working pretty well. The IPs are, we're using that. Students have been doing just proficiency flights just to stay current. So when we do get back up to the full system, we won't have as many warm-up flights to do. They'll be um, ready to jump back in in the portions of syllabus where they, where they finished up. But since we, since we finished, really the last production flying was in March. Um, so that gives us really three months of non-production. It'll probably be another month or two before we ramp up to where those training wings look like they did in the past from a production perspective. And we, 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 we um, complete about 50 TAC Air um, uh, pilots and NFOs every two months out of the Sinatra pipeline. So that's about 150, if you assume it's about six months we've stood down. Um, that we'll that will we'll now kind of that's a deficit we built that we will kind of move through the system it won't affect the fleet for about another year to 18 months um, but that's where we'll have to manage it when it gets the fleet now uh, all of the young aviators I talked to last week that are in training um, fully realize that this you know kind of adds a little bit to their timeline because their requirements don't start men's service requirements don't start until wings um, and so I said we'll we'll monitor that um, as you all move through the system but uh, but I think we've we've done we put mitigations in place in the past when we were short um, JOs and we'll just extend a couple in a squadron or maybe in our in our new turnaround cycle we may not fully outfit them or fully give them a full complement of aviators at the, at the very beginning of that so we'll we'll manage some things there will be some fleet impacts it will require some retouring of JOs I would imagine some extensions of junior officer tours which again we'll have to watch because that now all feeds into that after your first sea tour in the, in the first shore production and so we've got to be careful we've got um, um, you know, to address the kind of getting out of the hole here to, as we ramp back up, um, we've got some reserve uh, pilots, additional reserve pilots that uh, Sky Crane, Admiral Crane, my reserve deputy. I was in VF-143 with yep. So, so Sky, he's been very forward. Admiral McCullum and the, our um, commander of the Navy Reserve has, has said, we'll probably a dozen or 15 extra reserve pilots for the next two years. That will help. We'll do some things to keep some, uh, some instructors in Sinatra. Uh, rather than rolling them back to second sea tours, we'll accept some risk there, but we need to do that to kind of help dig out. Well, it'll be a, it'll be a, a divot that moves through, or a, a pig that moves through the snake, um, <laughs> for a for a while, and then we'll 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 have to manage this uh, that cadre probably through first sea and first shore tours. So this is absolutely not what you thought you'd be dealing with when you took well, no. the helm as the air boss. No, but you know it's I mean, these you know it it's a problem we'd been dealing with for a while um, yeah. and you know the if you look back in the trends I mean we had things 
as far back as, um, I mean, really starting to see this in 2012 or 13 in T45s. Yeah. And just over time, as the trends have kind of gone this up. This is the age of, I mean, we've been flying the T45 since whenever. I mean, how long has that been um, the advanced training airplane? Well, it's been, uh, gosh, great question. I mean, is it like 07, 08? I mean, it seems oh, yeah, like it, it's but a it's while ago. Maybe a little bit longer than that. Right? Okay. Um, we got rid of A4s, but yeah. we went to these both in glass cockpits initially. Then we had analog cockpits, but now it's all glass. But they've been at, they've been our plane for a while. But we'll we'll have them around um, probably through. I mean, our next follow-on, we do some follow-on modernization of T45, but we'll keep them for another 15 years or so. But this issue was it always resident, and we just didn't notice it? No, or it, has this it been is the health of like you said. Hy is it a hygiene over the years thing? I know you don't have a smoking gun, yeah, and that's frustrating. Um, but w what do we suspect? Um, I, and I don't, I don't want you to get ahead of the facts, um, which brings up another issue. Um, so I, I had, I worked at Navair as my first job out of the Navy on V-22. Um, but what I know, being after my years in the fleet, is you never knew what Navair was for, right? They were just the guys who would give you red stripes right. and ground the airplanes, and they were pain in the ass. Um, but now, in these moments, you truly do discover the utility of Navair. So how's how's that been like working with those guys? Um, well, I mean, they're, it's very engineering centric and that is their job is to kind of get to the root cause of these types of events and understand from a systems perspective what is potentially causing this. Now there's, you know, there's, Navair's a large organization and Emerald Grossglags would probably say the same thing. There was some frustration on the instructor's parts back then that they were communicating to Navair, hey, have you thought about this? Have you looked at this? And, um, and maybe not a same shared sense of urgency that <laughs> that maybe I have as Air Boss that they had as instructors that right. resonated back at Navair. Now that's clearly changed. We're moving forward very quickly. I think we're um, breaking some paradigms in terms of doing things in 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 um, in parallel versus you know in series and and really working through some of the test plans as quickly as we can, um, doing it smartly, but but really moving forward very quickly to do some things like the water separator discussion. We did some initial lab testing. Our gross flags was comfortable that the data was showing that it was probably going to work well on the airplane. So we, he authorized the mods to some of the airplanes while they do the testing at PACS. That's not, it's typically not done that way. So he leaned forward that in that uh, in that manner and, and fashion. I think that was very good and it saved us some significant time, you know, a couple of months or so at least in getting us back into production. But, uh, but there's, you know, it's a, You've been there. You know the organization. They do some great work um, and have some really smart engineers back there working um, for all of us. But you know, it's sometimes you, there's a there's a process they're used to doing yeah. and and going through. Right, and I think right. we've we've been able to we've been able to kind of break some glass here in some cases and and really say, look, this is it's an impactful it's an impactful. Si I mean, it, 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 the problem we're in right now, or the situation we were in, was hugely impactful to the health and future naval aviation. We needed to get back to production as, as quickly and smartly as we could. And they've been they've been moving forward very very quickly. Uh, Bill, I know you wanted had a couple of questions on some other issues that uh, the Airbus may be dealing with. Yes, sir. Maybe uh, switching away from a, a you know current state problem to uh, success stories. You know what's what's happening with naval aviation right now over the skies over Syria and Iraq, the the counter ISIL fight, or even off the coast of the Korean Peninsula. Um, so everybody's watched recently. The um, we had. One of our Air Wing 8 jets that, that shot down one of the Syrian fighters um, had a chance to look at the, the HUD tape, the heads-up display from that cockpit. And, um, I mean, some, uh, some very good work by that young air crew. Um, and I think that's typical of what we're, we're seeing from our forces forward. Really, I mean, and they're working in an environment that's very, um, 
you know, it's not, um, if I look at the environment in Iraq and Syria right now, there's the, the threats you face over land are not significant, but the precision you've got to execute that mission, that kind of close air support mission, is really, um, and we don't, I don't think we give ourselves enough credit or celebrate the excellence that happens every day over the skies of Iraq and Syria, not just with naval aviation, with, with our aviation forces, but those young men and women, uh, when you have to m be very careful in terms of the collateral damage assessments, the positive ID that has to be managed over the target, and then um, uh, just execute a mission very precisely because the consequences of not having all that suitcased from a strategic perspective, is, are very significant um, and consequential. So we've so they're they're doing some very good work over there, and I applaud Air Wing Eight and the team as they get ready to uh, finish up. Um, if you shift over to the other theater, probably operating and flying in the most politically sensitive environment around. Look at East China Sea, South China Sea, and to do the things we're doing down there, operating, um, just to provide our neighbors that sense of presence from the U.S. forces. They, they, we need to be there in that part of the world. And the carry strike group, most recently Carl Vinson, who just came home to San Diego last week. Um, now Ronald Reagan's on station. Nimitz will make a pass through there. She heads to the Gulf. But uh, in general, whether it's in the 7th Fleet, where it's not a kinetic fight, but a very much a, uh, I think, a very strategic presence operation, um, but in a very sensitive environment. And, those, and, and as you watch things happening in and around Korea as well, um, the operations that Vincent was was doing up in and around the peninsula, both on the on the eastern side and western side, um, very um, uh, very important uh, in terms of the certainly the Seventh Fleet and the Pacific Fleet commander and and Admiral Harris as the um, as a PACOM commander. So I think a little bit different, you know, from the operations from Western Pacific to over in the, the Middle East. But I couldn't be more proud of the, the work the teams are doing forward. How's the op tempo right now for our forces in terms of normal cruise length now? Is it seven, eight months now, and uh, is that sustainable? So, so we're we CNO has has um, has asked us to work as hard as we can to get back to as long as we're meeting requirements, get back to uh, no longer than a seven-month deployment. Carl Vinson just came home, uh, and she was just shy of seven months, but it was supposed to be a was January to end of June, so. Um, that was successful. Nimitz is headed out on a similar kind of a, a, of a deployment. Um, Bush will be right at that as well. So I think we've been successful doing that. But uh, outside of Bush on the East Coast, the preponderance of deployments recently have come from the West Coast. So that puts some stress on West Coast forces as we do. Um, Carl Vincent, Nimitz just out the door. Stennis is working up, or Theodore Roosevelt's working up. We'll deploy here in a couple of months. And that's four of the three of the four carriers, other than Stennis, who now starts into workups in uh, out of um, Pac Northwest. So that was a kind of a shift of the, the the global force management requirements coming from the West Coast here recently. So there's been some stress on the force, especially the strike fighter force in and around Lemoore, um, as we try and make sure they're they've got airplanes to use and the manning is good in those squadrons. Um, and they've worked very hard up through deployments or up through the workups. And head out on deployment. I think, and um, as you've watched, Vincent, as she just, or as, as um, um, Carl Vincent and Air Wing Two were just operating, they've done very well. So there's, so I think, and that that will shift here in a, you know, in a in a couple of months, we'll get back to where it's a where we'll have East Coast forces that will kind of be in the in the um, in the rotation, uh, primarily in the mix. So we're so it's it's a fairly steady pace. Um, I watch it closely. Uh, we've, we've obviously we've come we've been doing this for a long time. I mean, Navy's been out and deployed well before 9/11, but since 9/11, it's been a pretty, pretty it's been stressful on the force in terms of those rotations and um, and impactful to readiness. 
and so one of the things Admiral Swift has helped has tried to do is is where my job, at least at Air Boss, is to be able to generate the readiness we send forward, but also try and recover some of that readiness we've lost since 9/11, but probably most acutely since sequestration. And but again, we're working through that. So what what are the pain points of readiness? You when know, we're talking about the potential CR coming up, um, how's flight hour funding? I know we're reaching flea on a lot of the legacy yeah. Hornets and, and, uh, and you know, JSS has been slow to get to the fleet uh, in accordance with the master plan. So right. what, what are your pain points right now? I know you said you're dealing with op-tempo in, in, in an effective way, but what else are the constraints to getting that, that right? Um, so primarily, you mentioned flying hour accounts or flying hour dollars. You know, in the past, we've, we've done a pretty good job of I think as we build budgets, making sure those accounts are fairly healthy. What we quickly realized as we got into sequestration but the, is that there are a number of other readiness enabler accounts. Um, some that pay for just direct flight line readiness, some that uh, pay for the maintenance done in our depot, some that pay for parts. Um, and we realized, and as we worked, you know, in, in and through sequestration, there were some of those accounts that were severely under-resourced for years on end. Um, and I'll just give you an example. One was our the pays for parts, APN-6, that does our initial outfitting of spares and fills the shelves both on our carriers and at our, at our naval air stations. And for the last five years, um, I'll stop at 16, because in 17 we did, we've done some, some good work to, to, um, to plus up those accounts. But for about five years in a row, we were operating in and around 70% of the requirement. So you do that year on year for five years or six years in a row, um, you quickly are challenged across the fleet in terms of spares, which are key to keeping airplanes up and flying. And that's just one example of those readiness enablers that that we, you know, as we've made the the point with both the, our Navy staff and the, the DOD staff, and, and CNO's been very, very, CNO and Vice Chief, very supportive of making sure those accounts are funded to healthy levels. Um, and that will help us uh, probably be the most critical piece of our readiness recovery. And so 17 was a, we, we focused on, on those readiness accounts in 17. 18, we're in a, in a pretty good spot. And across the fit up, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing some good trends. So it's not just the flying our account, because we were, because of the challenges in readiness, we were not able to fully execute those accounts. So that was, that was a frustration on our part. That money ended up being taken and used elsewhere. But so now I think it's, it's a, there's a good understanding that it's not just the flying our dollars, but it's all those other readiness enabler accounts that are key to, to recovering and being able to sustain the readiness we need over time. And we've got a, as we've pushed, as you mentioned, F-35 has slid a little bit right uh, a couple years behind schedule. And it's driven uh, a utilization on our both legacy and Super Hornet force. Um, and there's some there's some things we we did in the past to stand up a couple extra squadrons of Super Hornets that you know wasn't that we didn't account for, and we didn't buy the extra airplanes, the pipe airplanes you need to do that will um, cover for that. So there's some there's some procurement that needs to happen as well for Rhinos, um, Super Hornets, and I and I think that's being recognized as well, and and both in in the building and over on the Hill in Congress, um, some support for that. Do you think the Blue Angels will ever get Super Hornets? They, they will eventually, but it's that's one we're watching closely. And that's uh, I think we're in a position right now where we can ensure they're going to have good uh, F-18 Charlies to fly for a while. They're 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 making the shows right now with um, it's essentially six to make six, uh, and but we've got probably our best um, Hornet maintainers down there, and they get the supply support and direct support from our um, our readiness depots. That they need to, to 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 make those shows work, but we're and they'll get healthy. A couple of different jets or a couple of jets are flowing in here over the next month or two, and and they'll get up to about eight or nine. 
for the season, which is it's where they should be right now. But they'll eventually get to Rhinos. It's not in the next year or two. Um, but we're, that's one of the things we're trying to do is, is move them into a, a Super Hornet. Sir, what's the uh, the sundown plan for the Hornet Charlies, for the legacy Hornets? Uh, we're working through that right now. Um, but we obviously we'd like to be able, from a warfighting perspective, be able to put squadrons into Super Hornets. And some of those procurements I just talked about, um, eventual deliveries of F-35s, uh, we'll take those best of those. Those, um, um, those are squadrons that will be, um, right now they're Rhino squadrons that are planning to transition in Lemoore. Um, but those will give us airplanes where we can actually start maybe looking at getting ourselves out of legacy Hornets as well. So Rhino squadrons mm -hmm. will go to F-35s and Charlie squadrons will go to, to the Rhinos? Rhinos. That, that's, um, that's the plan right now. Um, we've got, um, because of, of Lemoore, uh, we just stood up our, our re-established VFA-125, the old F-18 right now, the F-35 FRS in Lemoore. Um, and so the couple squadrons that have been identified as our first cup, first two, are both in Lemoore, and they're flying Super Hornets now. So that will be a transition. We'll use those airplanes to hopefully move um, um, as we can with time, get out of the, the legacy airplanes. 2025. Like, That's how, the plan. We're looking. Yeah, our Vice Chief has asked us to look at some things to make that happen sooner, because um, it's you know there's a a cost to own that platform, the legacy platform, and General Davis, uh, you know, just retired as the comment, or the Deputy Commandant for Aviation Day. That's that's a platform he would like to transition quickly into, or as 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 soon as he could into F-35 of some flavor as well. Um, but that's we're we're looking at that plan right now. Where did drones fit into your scan? So we're um, we're actually using them right now in in both the helicopter and the, we'll soon have them in the P-8 world. Uh, MPRA world. Uh, Fire Scout is flying. We've got detachments that have been operating around the world, both with Rome, uh, MH-60 Romeos and Sierras, very successfully off of LCS. Um, and so, I th and that's a, I think, is a is a pretty good fit to be able to, um, inside the detachment, they operate both the the the, F the Fire Scout uh, uh, unmanned helicopter, small helicopter, and then the, the the fleet helicopter that's in the in the detachment with them. Um, so that's a pretty good construct where you don't end up in that community where you build a, an unmanned community flying just fire scout. You, you do it all together on detachment. The, in the P, P3, P8 world, um, their leadership has a, I think, has a very good plan developed where they'll bring Triton online, the um, large area maritime surveillance platform that will deliver and we'll see it into the Pacific here in um, early 19. Um, but that's also set up where you don't c create an unmanned, and that's a great wingman to the manned P, uh, P3s and P8s, primarily P8 and Triton. It'll give, a, um, give some tremendous capability to work together and also to just kind of characterize the, the maritime environment. But that one is designed as well to operate forward with a s small detachment that would be kind of a second sea tour for us. So they'll do it inter internal to the community, but not stand up an unmanned community. I've been watching that very closely and some, some challenges the Air Force is seeing in terms of they created a, an unmanned community. And we're watching, so those are two examples of where we've introduced the unmanned or drones. Um, our last one is the MQ-25 that will eventually get into, the, into our carrier air wings. And we're looking through the manning construct of that right now. Um, and I think it's, I think it's doable um, in the same fashion where we, we create a, a small detachment that of maybe officers that runs that thing, operates that on deployment. But they'll come from communities and go back to communities, so that we're not having to deal with just a, an unmanned community in and of itself. So your your 60 pilots will fly the Fire Scout, your your P8 pilots will also fly the Triton. Yes. 
and your maybe Hornet pilots uh, eventually, or F-35 pilots may be flying the, the MQ-25. You could have you could have Hornet, VAW, VAQ. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's all. I mean it's it's um, it's keystrokes on a you know on a, on a key, you know keyboard right now. Right. Um, there's a there's a mission. There's a air vehicle operator, and then there's guys who do mission systems on board. And the vision for Triton is like they do in the Air Force for um, Global Hawk and or, or for um, um, uh, Predator all operated from Air Force bases here in Conus. We'll do the same thing from Whidbey Island and Jacksonville. The, the systems will be run from there. Now you'll have a detachment forward that will be just to launch and recover the vehicles. But once they're up and on mission, that will all happen you know, through satellite communications and run from Conus bases. Take on to the CSG commander or to the numbered well, fleet I'd commander? I'd love to have it take on to the CSG, but it will be to the numbered fleet um, command. I, I, that's an operational asset, the Triton is. I don't know that we're going to have it. That's why we've pushed hard for the for the MQ-25 to have that as an air wing strike group tactical platform that we can use inside the strike group. And right now, the MQ-25 is uh, primarily foreseen first as a as an area area Absolutely. refueling mm -hmm. asset. Uh, what about um, being able to expand the capabilities of that aircraft to be a, a CAD aircraft or a, a bomber or you know uh, just take on more of the, the tactical missions well right now we're I mean the focus right now is is a um, is a is a tanker to use to give us a kind of extend the reach of the air wing um, and reduce some of the um, uh, flight life expenditure uh, fatigue life expenditure on our super hornets because that right now that's the only tanker we have in the air wing or or rhinos um, so the design of MQ-25 we're just about to I think get to the um, and I want to get ahead of the um, the process here but it will give us the ability to extend the air wing out, you know, um, you know, probably three or four hundred miles beyond where we typically go. Five fifty to six hundred will get us out to, you know, nine to nine hundred to a thousand, and be able to do that and sustain, you know, a, a normal number of airplanes, you know, to get them out to that to that distance. So that gives us the ability to extend the reach of the air wing, um, and then you combine that with additional weapons we're delivering. That brings it from where the airplane will go to where the weapon will reach, and I think we get um, some pretty good. Um, pretty good legs, pretty good reach from the capabilities we'll deliver that, that MQ-25 will bring. Primarily as a, as a tanker, we'll, we'll obviously look, you know, keep our options open in terms of uh, additional capacity or additional capabilities you could put with that. But it's um, the key metrics we're looking at right now is, is ability to, to tank a number of airplanes at range. How, how much give that. on an MQ-25 on a, you know, at, at 200 mile range or? So we're, um, I think if you look at the specs, there's somewhere around, um, um, you know, fourteen or fifteen thousand is is what we expect to see at range. Um, maybe just a little bit more than that. Um, and there's a couple options out there. I've not seen all of the. Obviously, it's still going on. The um, that's greater than the, a rhinos give at that range. It would be absolutely. Um, just the way it's designed, the ability to be more efficient. I mean, a rhino would have to be a you know five fuel tanks, a five wet tanker we call it, and it takes a lot of. It takes a lot of gas to get that gas to range, and this is a much more efficient tanker, and it'll give us the ability to, to do that, get out there, and then be able to refuel, you know, um, four to six airplanes at range, and, and be able to extend the um, their legs an additional couple hundred miles. I mean, that when you define brave new world, can you imagine having a launch and recovery tanker that's a drone, right, and having that work in in uh, you know a regular launch event? I guess you'd launch the drone first, right? It would go up overhead, 
you know, and it'd be there for the whole event, then it would recover last. I mean, I, it's just weird to think in the case one pattern that there's an unmanned vehicle. Well, right? It, you're right, Ward. Uh, but the, I mean, that's I mean, we talk kind of mission tanking there when I talk about tanking at range. Right. But clearly, the uh, the endurance that comes with that, the ability to get that gas to range, also works in terms of cyclic ops that you and I are very familiar with. And so, the bill, the it will have the ability to cover at least three cycles. Um, so that you put one airplane up, and it you know goes up overhead the carrier, drops back down for the recovery, goes back up, and um, but you, you you're not putting any wear and tear on on Super Hornets, which is a, which is a good thing. Um, you know we're also we've also got some you know precision landing modes we're delivering in Super Hornets and Growlers that that will make um, you know landing on the carrier much easier. So I think you're going to start to see the combination of having that extra gas and the ability to do some things with precision landing modes. Um, where, where we always saw airborne tankers during the day and a couple extra at night, um, you may, if you've got if you've got MQ-25, it may be up already. But you could limit what you fly during the day because of the air wing's ability to kind of be very, um, very proficient at coming back to recover, just from the systems that the just from the um, the way the precision landing mode works. And they're flying it right now, but not with all the backups we need to to really call it successful. But that'll come in additional. You know, OF you know, operational flight program tapes for the for the Rhino, but it's a it's a very new unique capability in, in getting aboard the ship. So, is the controller guy on the ship, or is he Conus for for the, the for drone, the MQ-25? The it, it'll be he'll be on the ship. Okay. Okay. Now there's probably ability sense. to do something, uh, you know, from a, an external base somewhere, but primarily it's designed so it will operate from a, a control center or a tactical command center on the ship. And that's how we. I'd, I'd like to have it as a you know, former striker commander, an asset that I do control. Yeah, no, absolutely. It just seems sort of creepy that you have an airplane being controlled from ten time zones away. You know, that you're trying to get in the Hawker tanker position or whatever. You know, that I don't know how you even do that. Yeah, um, I mean that's that, that's the Triton model. You know, for we'll control it from the bases. At yeah. Home. But again, for this tactical platform, we'll control it right there from the carrier. Well, we're coming close to the end of the show here. Um, what else is on your mind what's keeping you up at night i'd like to ask about yeah. uh, gerald ford and the email system how that's going sir yeah i heard we're going back to steam that's what the <laughs> president was saying that sounds great right? well, i think i think we've shared um at least the nav c folks who have done the great work on the ship to and we'll commission here in a here in a couple of weeks which will be a, a very neat event and had a very successful both builders trials and acceptance trials um, for four, some systems we still got to work through to get her ready for eventually ready for um, up, up, upcoming deployments. But um, both uh, Captain Meyer, Oscar Meyer, now Rear Admiral Meyer, um, and um, Captain McCormick, Red Dog, who's the current CO, have done a fabulous job bringing that ship to life, and and obviously partnered with Huntington Ingalls and the team there um, to deliver that platform. Um, so back to emails, you know, it's it, there's. If you've ever, if you go around some of the amusement parks around the country, there's a, I know there's one, it's called the Cheetah at Bush Gardens in Tampa that runs on an EMAL, it's an electromagnetic launched roller coaster. And it does the same concept we have for, uh, for on the carrier. And we did s significant testing with, with, um, with loads, with weighted sleds um, before she ever got underway. So I'm, I'm confident that, and I think the data's been shared up the chain of command, that that system will operate how we <clears throat> how we design it and eventually get to the point where we can launch very heavy loads and fairly light loads which is the flexibility we're looking for um, and the ability to reset quickly with the the with the electrical pass capacity of those um those uh um uh of the the, the those engines the resting gear engines 
So I, I, you know, the design is, and there's a lot of things we put on four that were maybe not quite as mature as we would have liked, and we're working through that. But emails, I think, will be a will be a success story. Well, what are some of the other, just for the, the layman in the audience that uh, we might have listening to the podcast, um, so as you look at the ship, the island is farther aft. Right. Um, you just talked about emails, the electronic uh, impulse catapults. Uh, what other major systems are different than the Nimitz class? So the, um, you mentioned the island, and that was a design to be able to take advantage of a, a better layout on the flight deck to give us the ability to uh, recover, turn airplanes quickly, refuel, rearm, um, which, which gets to the, the sortie generation rate that for, the, the Gerald R. Ford will have and the class will have. So that's one of the designs. So in addition to EMALS, there's an advanced resting gear um, that's a totally new, new design um, that will allow us also to be able to, to expand the envelope of what we, you know, um, be able to recover up heavier airplanes we have now and also light ones if we start flying, you know, smaller um, drones or, or um, airplanes off the carrier. So that's coming along. Um, they've had some good testing up at at, uh, at Lakehurst on that, and I think we'll see, um, hopefully here, after we commission for the main opportunity to operate her with Super Hornets, that's the initial envelopes we've done already for for the, the resting gear bulletins uh, that you're familiar with to both launch and recover Super Hornets, and we'll continue to grow the, expand the envelope of all the other airplanes we'll, we'll take to see on forward. But between those two, I think we're, we're moving forward, and I think we have a good path for both the catapults and the arresting gear. There's a dual band radar, new system on board Ford um, that comes with both a multi-function radar um, and an air search, uh, air search uh, capability with it. Um, that's one that we're watching closely. There's some ATC functions that go with that, CATC, the ability to control our airplanes in and around the carrier, um, the carrier traffic control um, is, is a, an error watching. We're, we're haven't, we're, we haven't ironed out all the kinks yet in the, in the dual band radar. And that one I think is, we're all watching closely. We've, we've done some testing ashore. We'll do much more testing at sea um, to get that where it needs to be. Um, but that's a new technology we delivered. Um, I think that's, there's a new, a new engineering plant. Admiral Caldwell Naval Reactors was out for the ship's builders trials where they actually ran the, um, ran the, plant, the new plant and was very, he was very impressed with the team on board and with the operation of the new plant. So I think that it's a, it's a different, um, uh, I'm not a, a nuke trained that way, but I, I just know it's a, um, it helped, it's a, a, a different design than we have in our current Nimitz class, but I think one that we're going to be very happy with when it delivers. Probably the last system I'd mention is uh, advanced weapons elevators, which is part of the ability to turn airplanes quickly, move ordnance up and down. Um, those are um, unique. They're not kind of the, the pulley uh, um, assemblies that we had in the, in the past with raised elevators. They're all um, done with um, uh, electromagnetic as well, but they're very precise, uh, precision, um, uh, uh, how, would, how would you describe it? I guess as the, as the, as the, the um, the tolerances for the elevators going up and down are very precise. So we're, we're having to work through some of that and some of the of the um, uh, the mechanics of those new systems. So that's one we're we're looking at, and I think we'll get to a good spot on those as well. But that's probably the of the major things that you see on Ford um, as she delivers Is to the, the fleet. Is the lens the same uh, high definition lens that? Tencel, it is. Yeah, so iFlaws integrated I, or improved improved yeah. um, um, Fresnel landing aid system. Okay. But it, it's a, that's that's the same. The same one. Okay. Yeah. Twenty eighteen for putting an air wing on board for it, or, or, or you know initial uh, aviation testing and having the Hornets out there to conducting CQ. We'll have we'll have Hornets out doing some things just for the initial testing before. So we'll do we'll do some um, some operating windows for Ford in in between some other 
sort of miniature mini mini availabilities opportunities to do some things peer side as well as get her to see and do some sea trials we've got about a hundred days built in before she goes in for to her post um, that's all the sh that's all our shakedown type operations that we'll do then there's a post shakedown availability that will come that's about an eight month availability and that happens in uh, April of 18 but we'll, we'll have flown certainly super hornets if not expanded the envelope a bit before that time so we'll have plenty of ideally you know plenty of catapults and uh, restments on Ford as we head into the post shakedown availability there's some things we that we need to still deliver to you know on the ship there are some some places we knew we didn't need to, to have um, habitability places for the air wing on board we didn't need that right away so there's some things will be done um, to the ship during that uh, post shakedown availability that'll go for about eight months and so she'll pop out in in early 19 and start working up we've got an air wing identified already that will start workups or at least the the um, we've got some other things we got to think about whether they do do the full ship shock trials or not um, but there'll be air wings poised um, to be able to support her operations to, to kind of iron out and give the, the team an opportunity to, to run that ship um, and set her up for success as she moves into an actual operation or, or a optimized fleet response plan. Is the O3 level kind of the same, or is the no, ready room super cool now, or what, what's well, the there, story? Well, you, you know, we've as we move into classified briefings in almost every community, we're into the a lot of programs are special access now when with the new systems and weapons we've got on board. So each ready room has its own little classified briefing space. Um, and if you walked into one, you'd say, you know, from the kind of ready, would be the one seven and eight that are back aft, the fighter ready rooms that were fairly big. They're a little smaller than that. But they're laid out well, um, and the O3 level is—it's a little different than you would see on a on a Nimitz class, um, but it's all the same functionalities are there. Um, but it's—I uh, think it'll be, you know, from the guys that have been at sea operating on it, uh, really, really enjoy it. So. Is the dirty shirt still on the O3 level? Um, we've got essentially we've got a there's a if it's O3 or O2 I got to remember, but there's one four that will feed the air wing. There's there's a um, a large messing area on the on the traditional mess decks uh, and then a wardroom down at that level as well so there's there's some um and that's interesting the layout for that was a little different too and we found it wasn't quite as as efficient so there's some things we, we're going to do during that post shakedown availability to kind of move some things around to make the um the food service piece of four just a little bit better we made some assumptions going in and i think we're kind of rethinking those but um but it'll, it'll, you know, as we say on most ships, she's a feeder. She'll, <laughs> you have to, you know, when you're serving, you know, what, 10,000, Well, you got, you know, that's what you, the show's called The Dirty Shirt, and you got to have The Dirty Shirt to go to after the last yeah. event to solve all the Get you your problems. sliders. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, Admiral, I know you guys are headed down south to Norfolk and Oceana. We appreciate you giving us some time here uh, at the Pentagon, um, and, and we're, we're happy to come here to see you get out of the office. Next time we'll have to do this in Annapolis. You'll have to come see us at Beach Hall. Or you come out to San Diego. Oh, that wouldn't <laughs> be too bad either. We'll have to see you when we go out there for the West, right? We're out there in February. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe we can say hi when we're out there. That'd be good. All right. Well, classmates, great to see you. Thanks for, uh, for the time. Yeah, thanks, Ward. Bill, thank you very much.